everyone. My name is Eric Vento, and this is another podcast edition of Government to Private, where we interview people who have made the transition successfully and are now in a corporate role where they have the ability to breathe wisdom and their own story back into other people's lives and give them something to work off of. Ultimately, what we're trying to do here is show people that there's a lot of different ways to get from government to private. There's not, a, there's not one way, there's not two, there are numerous ways. And these stories are a really big reflection of how each of these individuals have done so. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Andrew Allett. Andrew and I have known each other for a number of years. We've collaborated on a, on a number of different things together, and I've been looking forward to having him on for, for quite some time now. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for hosting these podcasts. I was just telling Eric that um, from, from my perspective, sharing everybody's stories is not only just individually unique, it helps you kind of relate your only your your personal circumstances back to those stories and say, okay, like the challenges that these individuals have experienced, um, you know, oh, I, I can get through my challenges. So it kind of gives you a little bit of hope, a little bit of faith to navigate that journey um, from any government role to private. So thanks for having me. Um, how do you want to? How do you want to do this, Eric? This is my first podcast in a long time. I mean, how do you want to handle this? Let's just jump into your background, brother. You know, you can be as vulnerable or as as high level as you want, but I think everyone wants to know, like, from a government perspective, where'd you work and what roles were you in? And, you know, then we can kind of dive into how'd you know when it was time to leave? So 17 years ago, I started my career in fire EMS. And actually, um, my my whole life mission like before, before I got into fire EMS, I said, I want to change the world for the better. Like that was, that was my big hope and dream. And I said, oh, well, maybe I can be the president of the United States one day. Okay, Andrew, calm down a little bit. Let's, let's see how you can um, kind of taper that back and maybe have a different goal. And I said, well, I want to help like the most vulnerable populations out there. And I looked into my community and um, I was like pretty young at the time. And they said, well, you can be a volunteer EMT and you can get your training paid for. And I said, okay, that sounds exciting. I mean, let's see if there's an adrenaline rush. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility for somebody in high school. And I ended up going through the coursework, um, eventually, um, you know, passing my EMT license. And I said, well, I think I want to go to college. And, uh, ended up working my way through college um, as a firefighter and EMT um, and became an officer in the fire department, became a hazmat tech. And one day after like college graduation and everything, which by the way is challenging, like so to anybody out there working and going to school at the same time, you're not in it alone. I've done it three times and each time it's been miserable. And the last time was with a wife and a family, like a family being formed and everything, it's not easy. So I just want to put that out there for those that are working and going to school to get a degree or to get a certification. Like that's really, really challenging. And I've had my own trials and tribulations. Um, but I eventually transitioned out of fire EMS and went into defense contracting. Um, when I was in fire and EMS, there's really two pivotal moments that I had that said, it's time to, to leave. Number one was 
I said, well, I have this degree, I have this knowledge, and I'm just really curious about if there's a way to make a bigger impact. Um, and I said, maybe it's the time. Well, at the same time, I developed asthma. And um, I made a personal choice to remove myself from a fire engine um, because I didn't want to put my fellow firefighters at risk um, for me having an asthma attack in a burning building or anywhere. And um, that was one of the hardest decisions because um, I actually had an asthma attack on a fire ground uh, first day of the new year. Um, and it was kind of a wake up call. Um, like, hey, like medically, you may not be fit to, to do this. Um, the fire department's saying, oh, you're good. Keep going, keep going. But Andrew, like your own ethics are saying, hey, pull back, maybe do something a little bit different. So about a year later, um, a lot of action planning, kind of setting a date and working backwards from it. I said, I want to go into defense contracting, ended up doing that um, for two years. And then got approached by uh, some folks on Capitol Hill to come in and do some more type of work and eventually just transitioned through consulting about six, six years. And I said, well, I want to be a government employee again, like for some reason, like local government and some of my, I had some state government experience in there. Part of me was like, well, let me become a federal government employee. So when I was um, a, a contractor, I started applying to the U.S. intelligence community and got a hit one day. And they said, well, you kind of look okay on paper. Let's talk to you a little bit and see if you're an okay person. And somehow, uh, Eric is probably sitting here going, like, somehow you passed all those tests and everything. I have no idea how, knowing you, but um, <laughs> I did. And it was one of the most rewarding times being in the intel community for, I was in the intel community for two years. And um, it it was so rewarding working with um, not only federal like public safety members, but also um, the military and some of the brightest civilians in the world that have just so many incredible skills across the word that are sometimes undervalued within themselves, but they do have a lot of skills that are valuable. And I, and I saw that firsthand and got to give back to the mission of the U.S. Uh, DOD. So um how did I come to where I am today? So um, when I was when I was in government, I I said, you know, I, I think I have so much more to learn. Um, and about three years ago, um, I, I said, well, maybe maybe I need to go into the private sector and kind of learn some business acumen and uh, learn how they communicate risk and resilience and security. Um, to their stakeholders and who are those stakeholders. And I became really curious again about like, what is it like um, being a private sector employee? And I applied to two jobs, um, worked backwards from a date again, and understanding that it's so fluid, especially nowadays, like you can set a date in stone, but having flexibility because of that fluidness is really important. And um actually went against all my advice and all of Eric's advice and didn't ask for any like internal referrals or anything um, and applied, interviewed and learned a lot through the interview process and landed um, my current role today where I head up global IT supply chain security, both on the cyber and physical side for, for um, the largest e-commerce company in the world. So um, it's been a journey. Um, and that, that was my long elevator pitch, Eric.
I love it. I love it. That gives people a lot to go off of, you know? Um, and I, I love the fact that you're like, well, I just, you know, totally just disregarded, you know, the internal referrals and just, you know, tailored my resume as best I could and, and sent it off. And, you know, that's how I got where I am today. And, um, you know, ultimately, you know, we who have made the transition successfully, we always recommend that you tailor your resume, you get internal referrals, you network, you build relationships, et cetera. But even though that's the recommended approach, you know, as we said before, you know, there's a lot of different ways into these jobs. And, you know, I've, when I worked at TikTok and when I worked at Capital One, I didn't know anyone there. I didn't get a referral. I didn't build a relationship. I didn't have my resume slid across the hiring manager's desk. I just tailored my resume and I applied on a, on, on a prayer, you know, and I got the job. And so, you know, um, like I said, I, although I have seen the, the true benefits of, of networking and relationship building far and away in the majority of my career, you know, there are those pockets that I didn't have that and I still was able to succeed. So is it possible? Absolutely. You know, so I really appreciate you um, bringing up that example. Well, so let's, talk, let's actually talk about that, Eric. I don't mean good. to cut you off, but it, it's interesting, like hearing hearing you just explain like part of your personal journey and then just reflecting. I, I think about, you know, was was I just stubborn? Was was the public safety like in me just extremely stubborn and didn't want to accept help? Because I can tell you when I was in fire EMS and with some of the Leo's law enforcement officers I've worked with and everything, there's a lot of stubbornness, right? Like, and you don't want to ask for help. It's hard. It's hard to admit that you need it. And um, that's always been with me. It's gotten a little better over the years. Um, But there are still times that I'm like, I can do it on my own. I got this. And I, I think in some ways, it, it was a little uh, silly for me to think that I needed to do it all on my own and not raise my hand for help or not just ask the question. Because if you ask, the worst thing somebody is going to say is no or just not respond to, to a request. And if that's the case, then move on, you know, um, but you, you have to you have to ask. And I think that's one of the things that as I look back in time, I very rarely have asked. Um, and I think, I think like moving forward, one of the things that I've learned is to, to go in with a tribe, uh, like kind of build your tribe, build your like very com- like confidential like circle and don't be afraid to ask, you know, the couple people that you have, have in that circle for a helping hand. Um, and that's something that I've learned over the years. And now here I am, um, 10 years post like public safety and I'm still, still dealing with it. Um, so anyway, just wanted to share that too. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I think it's interesting looking at everyone's different stories and, you know, I think if there's one thing that people will need to get from this podcast or at least from the conversation that we've had so far is that there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. 
you know, and I'm sorry for such a, a bad example. That's the only one I could think of on such short notice, but, um, you know, like there's a lot of different ways to get from point A to point B. And, you know, this may be the recommended approach, you know, but just because it's recommended doesn't mean that the other solutions won't work, you know? And so as long as you have an understanding of, of what those other solutions are, in the potential downsides of just kind of going at it alone, you know, with, you know, reduced odds, I would say of success, um, especially in, in today's job market, then that's one thing. So, um, you know, what, what has been, I know, obviously you've counseled a lot of job seekers over the years as well. You've done resumes for them. You've had your own business, you know, what are some of the top areas of advice that you would that you have for people who are considering a transition out of the government if you're going to go into it blind and not prepared or not informed you just have a higher likelihood of not succeeding um or you have a higher likelihood of um the, the timeline to succeed being just extremely long um i think one of the things i've learned is that um you have to invest the time to prep and prep isn't just prepping for like interview questions. It's prepping for it's doing um, reconnaissance on like who who's your interviewer? Um, what what's the company like? What are the what, what part of the company will I be in? Um, and is there any publicly available information on that company? So like doing really good, like open source Intel searching and everything um, and going in with an understanding of like where the company's going strategically as well is super important. And I think that's undervalued. Um, also, um, depending on the role, um, one, one of the things I learned is um, for some of my roles early on, um, they were much more um, about tactical delivery. And the tone's kind of shifting a little bit now to more like strategic influence. And I think I think like how you prepare for that is a little bit different. Um, it's um, product delivery versus um, like how are you going outside of your your vertical that you're in and influencing change that's going to help the business function better. Um, and I mentioned that because the the examples become much bigger and much broader. And I think um, that's sometimes hard for people to grasp. Um, and I've worked with people that are chiefs that are transitioning out into, you know, other other roles. And um, there, there's also the imposter syndrome, too, that that I think a lot of people deal with. Um, I'm a chief in, you know, public safety and, you know, I'm going to be, become a manager like title wise. That's a shift like in and of itself. And then, two, it's like, OK, like the skills I have over here, are they really that valuable? Um, when I transition to private sector. So it's a little bit of confidence foster syndrome that comes up too. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, Eric, but I think there's there's um, definitely um, similar challenges across the board. And what I'll say is if you have imposter syndrome, if you don't have confidence, um, you know, listen to these podcasts and um, talk to talk to folks like us and all the others that you've interviewed. And, um, you know, just know that it's normal to to not have that confidence right away and not to understand how you fit in. Um, so yeah, I, I I like that, and that's 
you know, imposter syndrome is something that I've struggled with, you know, over the course of my career, because I can look back at literally every single job that I've had since being at Capital One, like working at Dell, Facebook, TikTok, Expedia Group, you know, every single one has been building a program from the ground up, you know, and I didn't come into that role knowing everything there was to know about that program or even probably, you know, for, for TikTok and a few of the other ones, even 50%, you know, and so a lot of this was growing into the role, you know, it was recognizing that, hey, I don't have all the answers. And in fact, I don't even have, you know, some of the answers. I don't know what this is going to look like. This is, you know, every time you're building a program, program, there's a lot of risk associated with it. You know, like, yes, there's a lot of reward by jumping in and saying, hey, I'll volunteer to build this program. But usually the, those are the first ones cut too when an organization has a reorg or something like that. And so there's a lot of risk associated with it too. And so, you know, if you don't have a lot of experience with that or, you know, you're kind of jumping in feet first and just kind of learning as you go, I think it's very easy to have imposter syndrome and just kind of be like, what am I doing? You know, like, do I really have the experience to do this and do it well? Like, what if this goes belly up? You know, what am I going to do? And um, thankfully, for the most part, you know, with the exception of a few places, every single job that I've had where I've had to do that has been a really significant success. You know, and there's a lot of things that you just don't have any control over, you know, but uh, without risk, there's no reward, you know, and, you know, for me, at least, if I go into a job, and I'm 100% qualified for it, then I'm going to be bored inside of three months, you know, and like, for some people, that's fine. You know, for some people, they prize stability over everything else. And challenge is like icing on the cake, you know, but it's not required, you know, and for me, at least I need that challenge. You know, it's hard for me just to sit still and say, well, you know, I'm in a good job and that, that's enough for me, hmm. you know? Um, now I think gradually as I get older, that takes on more and more precedence, you know, because stability is something that I think is undervalued in today's society from a job perspective, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's definitely something I struggle with. I see other people struggle with it as well, because when you're making that transition from government to private, it's not a one-to-one -one transfer. You know, like some, so much about the government is so black and white, job titles, job descriptions, you know exactly what you're going to do. You know the, where the box is, you know, the outline of it and everything in the corporate world, <laughs> it's just all over the place. You know, there, there, hard, there isn't any aren't any lines, there aren't any boxes, you know, and it can be really like unnerving for people making the transition to come into that type of unstructured environment, so to speak. And, you know, feel like, do I really have what it takes to succeed here? Do I even know what the rules of engagement are? You know, and uh, that's the one thing that I see over and over and over again, when I'm coaching individuals is like, do, am I even qualified for this? Do I have what it takes to succeed? And in the overwhelming majority of those situations, the answer is absolutely you do.
you know, and I think that's what people need to recognize about the transition process. Well, take, so you said a couple of things that really resonate for me. It's, uh, you, you mentioned risk. And I actually think that um, the, the biggest risk with government to private is realizing that you want to do it and then actively pursuing it. I'll get to that in a second. And then the second risk is what you highlighted is you're in the role. It's highly ambiguous. And you really don't know what success looks like because it's all new. Um, but the first risk, like making, starting to make that leap is risky because um, not only imposter syndrome, but also the negative stigma um, that public safety has on transitioning or that government has on transitioning, like any level of government. And I think that stigma needs to change. Um, I faced it a little bit. My wife's faced it a little bit. Um, and I know plenty of others that have faced it at different parts of their journey. And I, I think one of the things that I've told people is that the stigma is there, but like once you transition, it's the ownership's on you to help shift that stigma and articulate like, hey, I'm going to get new skills to... Um, further my career in this way. And then maybe one day you go back and you bring that. Like transitioning from government to private shouldn't be looked at as a negative. Like the mission of government is significantly different than the mission of private sector. Like it's not, it's it's just significantly different <laughs> is what I can say. And um, like the mission of government, you can really grasp onto, you can often see um, private, not always. It's not always the case. It's a little bit harder sometimes to see it. And um, if we remove that stigma, I think um, it'll it'll allow people to feel more comfortable to approach others for help. I think it'll allow people to market and brand, brand themselves a little bit more openly instead of being scared of repercussions because of you know what people say. So I think like the risk landscape with transitions like happens very early like on in the process where people are kind of processing it in their head and then they socialize it and they get shot down. They're like, oh, why would you ever do that? Well, you want to do it because you want to further your skills. You want to be a better practitioner of what a better leader. And then maybe one day go back. Um, and even if you don't go back, it's perfectly fine. You're, you're bettering yourself. You're developing yourself. So. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, one thing that I that we didn't get a chance to talk about is, you know, sometimes we focus so much on what worked well that we don't focus necessarily on what didn't work so well. You know, so were there any aspects of the transition process where, you know, you experienced a lot of frustration or where you're like, you know, absent imposter syndrome, you know, were there any specific issues that you just kind of like fell flat on your face or, you know, they didn't have the, uh, the outcome that you expected it would. Um, I don't know if this is where you're going with it, but when I transitioned from fire EMS to defense contracting within a month of my transition, I had no public safety support system anymore. I was disowned. And um, for me, that, that didn't work well, right? Like that, that was a really, really hard time because um, personally, like I was still dealing with PTSD 
And not having the group of people around me to support me was really difficult for years after. Um, that didn't work well for me. And that's a much bigger issue, I think, across all public safety transitions that need some help in addressing. That's why I say find your circle. Like I didn't have a circle back then. And um, it took me a while to realize that I needed that. And um, I needed mentorship. I needed support. I needed people that were in the role that I wanted to get into. I needed people that were a couple years behind that. I needed a couple like people that were just entry level, um, people outside of the industry that I'm in. Like um, that, that circle oh, is just so incredibly important and not having that was really hard early on. Um, so that's something that didn't work well that I wish I would have had. And it took me years to realize. Um, I would say the other thing that didn't work well is initially I didn't know how to write like I thought I did. Um, but writing takes on a, a little bit of a different tone in, in private, I think. I think business writing is different than um, academic writing, which is different than um, government writing, like writing styles are different. Um, and it was really challenging to, to understand expectations with writing and that form of communication. Um, and then kind of piggybacking on that communication to different like audiences and understanding that there's not just one set of stakeholders that I need to work with. There's a variety and what you communicate to them is completely different. And it took me a while to learn that too. Um, so a lot on the soft skill side, to be honest, um, um, less, less on the hard skill side. I think the hard skills can be taught by anybody. Um, and you can, if you have a good head on your shoulders, you can really learn those hard skills, um, through on the job training. Um, but the soft skills, um, even though I thought I had them in public safety, even though I thought I had them, um, in government, they kind of change a little bit. So it took me a little while to learn that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, you brought up mentoring specifically, you know, I've had multiple mentors, you know, through the years, you know, Chris, Chris Almond Road in the Dallas Fort Worth area has been my mentor for a long time. Um, I've had a few other mentors who have requested confidentiality, but um, I think it's really, uh, it's really important to seek out people who are considered thought leaders in the industry but also people that may not really be considered a thought leader, but that you just have a really good relationship with who are at a sufficiently high enough level to give you advice on how to get to where you want to go. And so how have you, how have you approached the mentor selection process, if you will, of, you know, how do I determine what I want? How do I reach out to people? You know, what is your process for doing that? Mentoring is uh, not a one for one for what I'm about to say, but it's very similar to like dating in a way. <laughs> um, mm, it's, a, okay. it's a weird, it's a weird analogy, but you have to have fit. Like you have to have like um, a little bit of um, like fit between the, the two individuals. And what I mean by that is like, you have to feel really good about the conversation you're having um, for anything to just advance forward. And with folks that I have approached, uh, I'll talk about how I approach them, but like when I approach them, I, I approach it from the angle that maybe this won't work out. 
um, I, just being open-minded to the fact that not everybody meshes. Um, and sometimes uh, some people are way too direct for what you need and other people aren't direct enough. Um, and you have to find like that happy balance of what you need at the end of the day. And if you need somebody to be very directive with feedback, then you're going to go a different angle than somebody that's a little bit softer and a little bit lighter to navigate a situation. So um, how do I find mentors? So I typically look for people um, that are in the, the role, the next role, and then two roles past where, where I want to be um, or where I am today. Sorry about that. And um, um, I, I kind of go on LinkedIn and I look um, for those target roles and I say, wow, you look like a really interesting person. Worst case scenario, we just work virtually network. Best case scenario, I somehow present myself as somebody that, you know, wants to be mentored um, and, you know, see if there's an offer to continue that conversation. Um, and if there's not, then maybe I need to be a little bit more direct about it. But I approach um, every conversation as let's see if we're a fit for each other. And if we are, then we'll have another conversation and then maybe a third conversation. And at that time, I'll say something along the lines of like, you know, I really appreciate this, this mentorship that you've been providing to me um, month over month uh, for the last couple months. Like, would you be okay if we just continued this conversation? We had a check-in, we share information and we help each other out because a mentor-mentee relationship works both ways. Um, I've had plenty of mentees that have mentored me <laughs> um, and I've mentored mentees and it works both ways. I actually learn more from my mentees sometimes than I do some of my mentors. It's just, and it flexes back and forth quite often. Um, so just because like you feel like you're taking up somebody's time um, and they're mentoring you, you're also giving back something to them as silly as that sounds. So um, don't don't underappreciate like some of the knowledge, some of the things that you're doing, because it could be challenging what the mentor is doing every day. And that's a yeah. good thing. Like, so um, there's, there's a whole host of ways to go about a mentor mentee relationship. Um, but I kind of um, slowly dip my toes into the water and see how things go and see if personality wise, we're a fit for each other. And if we are, then eventually I'll, I'll ask the question, do you, do you want to be my mentor? <laughs> um, or do you want to be a mentee of mine? You know, again, it works both ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm not going to lie. When you said, do you want to be my, my mentor? I thought the next question was, do you want to be exclusive? You know, um, <laughs> I, I knew your head was going to go there because I, I had some other thoughts in my head. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the, <laughs> all because I led off with, um, the dating analogy. I knew, I knew yeah. that was going to bite. Me. I, uh, <laughs> you know, this is, you gotta inject a little bit of humor into this, but, uh, you know, I think you're right. And not, not, I think I know you're right because, you know, the mentor relationship, it should be bi-directional. You know, it shouldn't just be one person pouring out of their cup into, into the, into the other person. It should be that individual who's being mentored providing feedback and providing, you know, constructive um, feedback to the person who's delivering the advice. And that really helps that it really helps ensure that we're providing, you know, a really, really good service, but that we're also providing the service that people need, you know, 
because being a mentor doesn't mean having all the answers. It just means being able to listen and being able to ask questions that hopefully allow the individual who's being mentored to arrive at a conclusion that they needed help with. You know, I kind of liken the, the mentor relationship with that of a coach. You know, it's not a therapist since, you know, therapy is so much different, so much more different than coaching, but it's really helping you talk things out and come to a conclusion that you may have come to on your own, but you wouldn't have had the context from a mentor relationship. So, yeah. Um, and Eric, I would say like the other thing that you just cued in my head is like a lot of times people go into these mentor mentee relationships and they're like, we have to set a cadence and we have to um, be very strict to that cadence. And I would say, actually, my, my approach is it's a hybrid approach with some mentors and some mentees. It's very structured because that's that's what we need at the time, but also allowing for that flexibility that you know, a mentee or a mentor may not need that much like time together. Like it could, it can be ad hoc. It doesn't have to always be planned. Um, and that's why I say like, kind of feel it out in the beginning and see like personality wise, like what do both parties need at the end of the day? Um, and that touches on what you said. Like we oftentimes, um, you know, think we need something or we really want something. But when we start talking to somebody, it's not what we need or want. It's actually completely left field to what we thought originally. So, um, and I will say coaches have helped me also. There's a big difference between mentoring and coaching and also therapy to your point. Um, they all serve different purposes and I'm not going to claim I'm an expert and I can define each one, but I will say that Coaching very has been directionally helpful for me to realize what I want my roadmap to be for my career in the short term. Um, mentors have fed into that and helped uh, also provide some direction, but targeted coaching for reflection um, is something that has been extremely valuable to me and that um, I, I invest in for myself quite often. So um, anyway, just wanted to highlight that too. Absolutely, man. Well, we talked about a lot today, and I know that whoever listens to this is going to come away with quite a few different nuggets of information, especially as it pertains to the transition process, mentoring, coaching even, but also just knowing that there's a lot of different ways to approach this process. And even though, in my opinion, there's a recommended way to approach it based upon my own experience and the experiences of others, even if you don't choose to go that route, there's other, there are success stories that are associated with that as well. Case in point, yours, you know? And so I really appreciate, you know, you having an opportunity to come on the show today, but also just being willing, being willing to be vulnerable and share your story and hopefully help at least one person who is struggling with something similar. Any other advice or anything else that you want to say before we close it out? Um, the, the only thing I'll say is that, um, I, I think we've highlighted this in, in your other podcasts that's come up, but no, no approach is linear. My career has not been linear. Um, be curious, be respectful. Um, and those two characteristics will get you 90% of the way, I think. Um, and it, it, it's, it's not an easy 
thing to do, like transitioning from whether it's government to private or job to job, it takes work and nothing is ever just handed to you nowadays. Like you have to really differentiate yourself. So create your circle, lean on your circle. And if I can help you in any way, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, just look my name up and, uh, you know, connect with me, ask any questions. Um, you know, I, I may have some challenges with scheduling sometimes as Eric has uh, learned, but I will always give people the time of day. If it's not immediate snap of a finger, it'll be within a day or two. So yeah, definitely hit me up. Absolutely. Well, definitely. please feel free to do that guys. And that goes for me as well, but thank you so much for you know, coming on the show today, Andrew, and it was great to have you and your wisdom here. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye.